1: You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: All right. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Heritage radio network we are uh, cribbing a, a some theme music from our friends who um do a show on sunday the morning after check it out every sunday at three o'clock um but you are, today are listening to the farm report it's because it's thursday it's one o'clock so you're probably aware of that we are coming to you as always from the back of roberta's pizza it's a lovely day here in beautiful bushwick brooklyn and i'm super excited my guest today is the ever famous one of our favorites here at the heritage radio network will harris will welcome to the show
3: thank you very much delighted to be here hope you're all doing good today
2: oh i'm feeling good because i can walk down the street without having soaking freezing feet which is the first now you guys have been getting some crazy weather down there too has that been impacting you guys at the farm
3: Well, Atlanta, yes, but we're about three hours south of Atlanta. I'm only about 80 miles from the Gulf of Mexico, and it is really a great place to live. We get about 60 inches of rain. It almost never freezes, and there's something green growing 52 weeks a year in my pastures. So, you know, we're blessed.
2: I'm jealous, I'm, I'm going to be honest. Um, well, for folks who want to hear um, some of the basic um, background of Will's Farm White Oak Pastures, definitely tune in to the Farm Report, the episode 139, where we, we go over that in pretty much detail. Today, what I really want to focus our conversation on is your work with Whole Foods and the Global Animal Partnership. Now, is it correct that you're the only... Um, Farm in the U.S., it's 5-plus uh, certified on, on four species. Is, is that right?
3: That, that is correct. The, uh, the four species that Global Animal Partnership uh, currently has standards for is cattle, hogs, turkeys, and chickens. And we raise all four of those as well as uh, six other species and 5 plus is the highest level that they uh, extend, and we have a 5 plus in all four species.
2: Well, so I want to I wanna talk about those steps. So, you know, it's step one through five, and then 5 plus. Um, and I'm hoping that maybe you can talk to us a little bit about where these steps ca- came from, what the impetus was, and how we as consumers should be kind of thinking about the ratings when we're out and about shopping and, and trying to be responsible purchasers of meat.
3: I sure will. <laughs> the, uh, the, the Global Animal Partnership is unique uh, in that it does have step categories for increasingly good animal welfare or animal husbandry. There are two other very good, very, very good animal uh, welfare uh, verifiers in this country. They are uh, animal welfare approved, AWA, and uh, uh, certified humane. That's humane animal uh, farm farm animal care. Both of those are excellent programs. But what what makes GAP, Global Animal Partnership, unique is uh, a farmer can be very industrial, conventional, factory farmer. He can make some improvements and and get credit for it and be a step one. He can, you know, and then over time, if he can uh, further improve, uh, he can go to step two, then step three, four, five, then five plus. So it's uh, beneficial in that a farmer doesn't have to go from doing a really not so great job uh, with reference animal welfare <clears throat> to doing a really good job without any appreciation for that.
2: For the steps along the middle. Well, and I feel like you're the perfect person to talk to about this, because when you started farming, your production looked a lot different. You know, your production methods looked a lot different than they do today. So maybe can you talk a little bit about that transition point for folks who maybe aren't familiar with your work?
3: Certainly. Uh, My great-grandfather came here about 150 years ago. It was in 1866 after the Civil War. Uh, And he would have uh, raised animals in a manner that had a very high level of animal welfare, and a high level of environmental sustainability or stewardship. Uh, his son was my grandfather far much the same way, but during my father's watch post-World War II uh, was the era when <clears throat> virtually all Americans uh, centralized, commoditized, and industrialized. And my father was no exception. He did that. And... Uh, and, of course, that, that, was, that made food cheap and abundant, but it, re- it really took a toll on animal welfare, uh, environmental uh, stewardship, and the economics of rural America all paid for it. Uh, during my watch, uh, commencing in the mid-'90s, I started improving those things and today I've got uh, two daughters and a son-in-law, and we run what we believe is a uh, a very high animal welfare, high environmentally sustainable operation. We raise five red meats pasture raise five red meat species and hand butcher on the farm, and we pasture raise five poultry species and hand butcher on the farm. As well as serve out organic vegetables and eggs,
2: um, I want can you talk a little bit about you when you say the 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 toll was felt by economies of rural America? I, I think that's an issue that that gets a little bit of a short shift in in discussions. I feel like we're as a, a kind of increasingly conscientious consumers familiar with the animal welfare issues and familiar or more familiar anyway. With the animal welfare and the environmental concerns, but but maybe you can tell us a little bit when you talk about the economies of rural America that were impacted by those production shifts. What what you mean and like how that kind of played out?
3: Sure. <clears throat> uh, to uh, during the uh, uh, post depression era after the depression the Great Depression, which started about 1930, uh, rural America. Uh, enjoyed a vibrant local economy, account- many local economies. Uh, small fa- farm towns enjoyed a lot of prosperity. Uh, and that, uh, that started to erode in the industrialization that occurred after World War II. Uh, we centralized production. Uh, I say that we centralize, industrialize, and commoditized the centralization of production caused all of the local value added uh, processes to leave uh, rural small towns and be centralized into large factory operations. Think of the uh, Chicago packing houses uh, you know Sinclair Lewis wrote. Uh, uh, oh, goodness, what was the book? It just went oh, The Jungle.
1: Head.
3: The Jungle, right. That was uh, an example of the centralization of the meat business. You know, prior to that occurring, every little small town had a little family owned abattoir or packing house, very similar to what I have here on my farm, where they processed red meat and or poultry. Uh, it was grown locally. Uh, processed locally, marketed and consumed locally. That's what my family did here for the first 75 years. Uh, so that that was uh, uh, and and to, to bring it home, uh, my farm, White Oak Pastures, uh, today employs 100 employees. 100 employees on this farm. Uh, prior to my uh, changing the way I farmed in the mid 90s, I had three employees, all of whom were uh, a fairly minimum wage sorts of jobs. Today, out of the hundred employees we have, nobody makes minimum wage, everybody's above that. We've got a bonus program, we contribute to uh, uh, health insurance, and we all eat lunch together. Uh, and family style in my little own farm restaurant, and employees pay a dollar per meal for that privilege, so it's you know we have a hundred jobs for their quality jobs, and those jobs resulted from us uh, on this farm decentralizing de industrializing and decommoditizing.
2: Thank you for that and I feel like um I don't know. It, it kind of it's just like the story warms my heart. And well, I want to come back to the gap steps, and and I'm hoping what we can do is take a, a walk through each of the steps. And you know, I was really surprised when I when I pulled them up on on the Whole Foods um, website h- how simple they they were listed. Um, and so I'm hoping that maybe you can talk to us a little bit about how operationally these these different steps are understood. Um, so the first First up is, you know, step 1, no crates, no cages. Animals live their lives with space to move around and stretch their legs.
3: Yeah. Yeah, uh, the, and, and the very, okay, of course, it varies uh, across the four species. And to take them step by step gets a little bit cumbersome. For example, there is no step 3 for cattle. Okay. So it, okay. But uh, essentially what uh, the Global Animal Partnership has done it was originally formed out of seed capital from Whole Foods, but it was spun off into an independent uh, organization uh, with a board with, has a board of directors that uh, supervises the executive director. Uh, lady named Ann Malo is serving as that executive director right now. Uh, they have a uh, panel of uh, advisors who are animal uh welfare animal behaviorist experts from all over the world and they set those standards and the first one step 1 is uh is really pretty low hanging fruit it is better than a uh conventional factory farm but it's, it's pretty easy to achieve it. It's, it's, it's the training wheels. It's, it's where people can start. And it's not too, too difficult or expensive to go to step one. Step two, uh, a little harder, a little more expensive. Three, a little harder, more expensive, and so on. Uh, it's, uh, it, we, we really, I, in my mind, we overcomplicate. What is good animal welfare? Uh, I'll give you the, the cowboy wisdom on that. Uh, there was a time when uh, good animal welfare simply meant that the stockman or owner did not intentionally inflict pain and suffering on the animal. And if the, 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 the people didn't intentionally inflict pain and suffering, it was considered to be pretty good animal welfare. And that, that was the industrial model, the factory farm model. Uh, you know, As we became, we stockmen became more enlightened, and consumers uh, honestly helped help with that enlightenment, we came to realize that's really not good animal welfare. Good animal welfare means that we, the stockmen, the herdsmen, must create an environment in which the animal can express its instinctive behavior. You know, cows were born to roam and graze. Uh, Hogs were born to root and wallow. Chickens were born to scratch and peck. All of these are instinctive behaviors that are inborn. And when we create the factory farm uh, environment, we deprive those animals of that right, of that opportunity, excuse me, that opportunity. Uh, So good good animal welfare just means you create the environment for them to do that. And it's really, you know, there's some really complicated protocols to determine what is good animal welfare. but, But the big tip is if you enjoy watching the animals, if you would like to open up a lawn chair, and have a glass of wine and just watch them that's probably good animal welfare if if you don't enjoy watching them it's probably bad animal welfare nobody uh, other than the a, uh, uh... a psych, psych, psychotic wants to watch a hog in a farrowing crate or a cow bogging in feces or breathing fecal dust uh, uh, or a, a, a chicken, you know, in a, a, a huge uh, barn or uh, laying battery cages, it's 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 a cruel environment because they can't express instinctive behavior.
2: So the so I'm, if I'm understanding, I mean, I and I think what you're saying makes sense. That ultimately, our instincts of of, of good behavior are are correct. I mean, when we think about like how we would want an animal to be taken care of and what feels good to us. We f- should follow those instincts. But obviously when you're looking at a business or at an industry, there is a need to set you know, a stricter definition. So I feel like what I'm hearing from you is the kind of steps that I'm seeing, I'm guessing anyway, that the steps that I'm seeing as they're laid out on the website, there's you know a second or a third layer to them that breaks them down um, more specifically, by species and with more specific protocols. I mean, is that is that right, or is I, I just kind of want to understand like how we as consumers can be thinking about about the steps and about kind of what they actually mean? Because they all sound like a very nice progression. Um, and obviously, as you mentioned, there's a panel of experts that was put together. To, to make these decisions, but if i'm uh, you know an owner operator am I and I decide okay, I want to start engaging in this gap certification? do I get a booklet? Does someone come and visit my farm? I mean how do I know that I'm moving in the right direction and, and who says you were step one and now you're step two
3: okay the, uh, so the, the, good the, the first part of that is that <clears throat> uh, all those steps are uh, Oriented so that each one, uh, one at the bottom, five at the top. Each one allows the animal to operate with uh, to, to to enjoy more and more of their instinctive behaviors. Uh, at, at one is it's just not so good. Two's a little better. Five is is deemed to be the best, and the best uh, as is determined by their panel of experts. And, you know, as a, as a lifelong stockman and a, uh, you know, I have my degree in animal husbandry, and you know, it, they're good. I mean, those people know what they're doing, and they've done a good job. So GAP sets the standards. Uh, the farmer uh, hires the third party verifier to come out to the farm and look and, and conduct an audit. Uh, to see if indeed, or to to determine uh, indeed at what level we're operating. And, of course, the standards are available to the farmer uh, before the auditor gets there, so he can look and see, you know, if I don't change this or this or this, I'm going to wind up with a step one. I really aspire to be a two or three or four or five, so i got to change some stuff and the auditor comes out, and he's got a, has a protocol uh, that, and it, it's an all on a decent sized farm. It's pretty much an all day audit. Uh, and he asks the auditor goes and looks at the livestock. He asks hard questions. Uh, he looks at records, and he makes the determination of uh, this is a step two, three, four, five, whatever. Right. right. So. There, there, there are no real surprises. Uh, it's, it's, it's really just a verification of what indeed the farm was really doing.
2: Well, well, we are going to take just a short break and we come back. I want to talk about kind of the very beginning of, of animal welfare. I want to talk a little bit about how we should be thinking about genetics. But hang tight. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in just a moment.
0: Listening to Running Like a Ghost by Shadowbox on Heritage Radio Network.org.
1: And I packed a bag of followers, and I run away from you. It was all a blur, it was all a mess with us. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats, Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit www.surreyfarms.com.
2: All right, we're back. We are on the line with Will Harris of White Oak Pastures. We're talking about GAP certifications now. Well, we've, we've talked a little bit about the different steps that people should be thinking about with regards to ensuring an, you know, an increase in animal welfare. Um, I want to talk a little bit about genetics because I think that's another topic that um, we're hearing more and more here at the station is, you know, are the types of animals that we're growing on farms in line with our our values as well. And I'm wondering if you could would talk about that idea a little bit and how you think about that on your farm.
3: Uh, yes. Uh, genetics is very, very important. Uh, through uh, many generations of selective breeding, uh, we have changed animals from uh, the way they were 50 or 100 or 200 years ago into something quite different. And we're not we're not talking about genetic engineering here. We're just talking about selective breeding. In many cases, uh, what's used is uh, line breeding, which is a, a, a kind word for inner breeding. And it's amazing how uh, uh, much change uh, can be made using these uh, practices, and there's no better example than the chicken. Uh, here on my farm, we use uh, a, a heritage breed cross. Uh, it takes us uh, 12 weeks to make a three to, to grow a three to four pound dressed chicken. Uh, an industrial bird in confinement that's been genetically uh, bread to do so can make a five pound chicken in less than six weeks so it's way over twice as fast uh, growth as, as what I have here now quality of life for the bird is very very different you know our birds uh, literally can fly they fly up and and land on a, a limb and roost at night uh, they walk scratch, peck. Uh the uh birds that grow so fast, uh in fact grow so fast that they wind up having problems, uh, particularly with their feet and legs. And and you know a lot of bit work's been done uh, describing exactly how fast these birds grow, but it is absolutely incredible. And they, they really have a very uh the, the industry puts it have a low uh, biological need. In other words, they pretty much uh, are happy to sit in one place and eat and defecate and grow flesh. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a pretty disgusting animal from my perspective.
2: Yeah, I, I feel like in my experience, even. Well, one of the things I thought was interesting in a farm that I spent some time on, we raised some of some of the you know more more popular conventional birds out on pasture and I was I mean we literally had to put the feet on one side of the pen and the water on the other to to force them to move and it was a strange thing if if a bird stuck around past that for us it was a seven eight week point they would yeah it would get hurt it would it would it would die I mean it seemed like there was almost like uh if, if you weren't harvesting it um, for someone's dinner plate, that the the bird's life would be ended shortly anyway, um, which it is just kind of like a crazy, I don't know, it's a crazy thing to me. Well, I want to talk a little bit about cost because you mentioned that earlier as from a production standpoint, as someone's moving up the gap steps from one to five to five plus, that on the production end that you're going to see an increase in costs. And I'm wondering, those those increase in costs that's coming, in what form? Is it? Is it labor? Is it equipment? Is it space? I mean, where are those costs coming? And um, how, you know, directly is that translated to what the consumer should be expecting to pay? You know, can we assume that a 5-plus bird is going to be... You know, twice as much as a step one bird. Does it work like that? Maybe you can talk a little bit about how we how we think about the cost on both the production end and the consumption end.
3: That's a very good question. Uh, you, what you have to remember is that since the nineteen forty five or so, really smart people have been working in universities and private industry laboratories to come up with ways to take cost out of meat production. And when we choose, and they, they've given us a whole arsenal of industrial tools uh, and production methods to do that, and when we make the decision to give those up, we add those costs back. Uh, and it's, uh, the most interesting part is it's very species-specific. Uh, in other words, our grass-fed beef, step five plus grass-fed beef, probably cost us 25 or 30% more to produce than, say, a step one uh, grass-fed beef. And that's primarily due to land cost. Uh, it takes a lot of land to raise uh, grass-fed animals. Uh, In the case of chickens, uh, a step five plus chicken probably cost 300% more than a step one chicken. Wow. And that's due primarily to uh, 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 labor and feed cost. Uh, Those uh, birds, those genetically uh, bred Birds bred to gain weight fast are so uh, efficient in their uh, conversion of corn and soy to to poultry meat, and uh, and then in the uh, you know even the step one is cage free, but there may be twenty something thousand of them in one long building with self feeders and self waters, whereas in my production model, you can see it on our website, whiteoakpastures.com, an employee has to go and visit every house every day, seven days a week, uh, twice, once to feed them and once to water them, and that's Christmas and New Year's and the Fourth of July as well, so it's, uh, the cost of raising chickens uh, is increased far more than the cost of raising cattle, uh, the price of pork is out there in the middle somewhere, uh, so it's, it's very species specific, and then it's purely a function of having given up the tools that science gave us that takes cost out of production.
2: So, so that's surprising to me that the cost is so different from chicken to beef, especially considering that you know in twenty thirteen in the U.S. we you know chicken just surpassed beef as the most consumed protein and and I'm wondering, you know, I feel like when people eat chicken, they have this idea that that they're eating something that's either you know, healthier or raised in a way that is more in line with their values, but I don't know from what I'm hearing you describe it seems like that's not really an assumption we can make.
3: No, it's absolutely not 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 an assumption you should make. Uh, And and one way of thinking about it, one of the reasons that the chicken costs, uh, increases costs so much more than beef is, think of it this way. The smaller the animal, the more handily they uh, adapt to confinement, industrial, uh, factory farming. There's only so much you can do with a cow, a twelve, thirteen 1,300-pound cow. But with a little chicken, you know, you can really crowd them in. You can re- they really lend themselves up uh, for industrialization. And uh, I'll, I'll say this, and, and if somebody asks me to quantify it, I can't do it, but the difference, uh, the quality of life between a step one and step five cow, I think is, is pretty significant. But the difference in the life of a step one to step five chicken is just exponentially more different. You know, chickens, confinement chickens have a very, very bleak life. You know, there was a time when uh, a chicken was the premium protein. Chicken was what people had for Sunday dinner. Chicken is what people cooked when they had uh, important visitors. And you know, fried chicken was the quintessential southern uh, uh, white tablecloth food when you were trying to impress somebody. And uh, chicken uh, be- became the per capita consumption uh, that you mentioned earlier has skyrocketed. Because chicken has become so obscenely cheap. You know, you can go to the grocery store sometimes and find whole chickens on sale for less than a dollar a pound. That is obscenely cheap.
2: You have to wonder, like, where that cost is coming in. Well, I want to touch on two more points because we're but, cause we're just about out of time. But, like, one of the things you said earlier, sticking on this chip, chicken topic, is that because of the um, breeding technology that's been employed for the commodity birds that they're you know a very like they're they're biologically they don't have many needs so I wonder if do people make the argument you know you talk, you hear a lot about like oh do you know lobsters feel pain when you dump them in the boiling water and do fish feel pain I mean when we're thinking about this that particular Breed of chicken how do we I mean how do we kind of think of like you know you think of uh, you know pigs are are supposedly as smart as dogs, and you have a a, a commodity chicken and you have a heritage breed chicken Should we feel equally bad for the commodity chicken if it's if it's like it doesn't have the capacity to understand that it's suffering I mean how do we think about that? Um, I, I just feel like it's this thing that I have an innate reaction to, but I'm wondering if we kind of step away from it. it, it what are the expectations that that chicken has uh, of happiness, or it, have the instincts of chickenness being, been bred out of it? Should we think of it as some other animal, some non-chicken, but some other thing? I don't know, I if, don't that know if that really makes, really makes sense, sense, but I'm—I I'm, don't know if you have thoughts there.
3: Yeah, I do. And uh, I think I understand what you're saying. <clears throat> uh, well, two, two, two comments, actually. One is, I think that if you had the opportunity to come and, and walk with me into the pasture and see our Step 5 birds out scratching and pecking and taking dust baths and chasing each other, and they were like, they look like kids in a park. And then, you know, the same day, go to a dark, uh, dusty, uh, uh, confinement chicken house with with high ammonia in the air and see those birds. I don't think you'd have to ask that question much. But let's just say you don't have that opportunity. So let's, let's think about it like this. Uh, you know, do you... You theoretically, you could. We could uh, breed our children to to be couch potatoes that really like to lay in the recliner all day, every day, until it's time to go to bed. And then go to bed, and then you know get up, and eat some more donuts, and lay on the couch some more. We could breed a a, a line of humans that. That were like that. That's kind of what we did with the chickens.
1: Right, right.
3: Now, do you think the quality? And then, and then you take a just a regular kid that's, you know, that's just dying to go outside, play football, throw the frisbee, or kick the soccer ball, or shoot the shoot for the hoop. Uh, which one do you think's got the highest quality of life? Right, right. And you know, I uh, so that's that's almost exactly what we've done here. And I, you know, and the same is true. Uh, you know, we say that uh, that good animal welfare is, is confining them and keeping them fed and keeping them comfortable. But is that, would that be good parenting? I mean, is it good parenting to, to take your kids and lock them in a closet so they'll be safe? But, I mean, the closet has got a mattress in there, and it's 72 degrees, and the light's left on, so the child is very safe. Nobody can bother it. But it's not much of a quality of life because the kid can't express instinctive behavior. Yeah. yeah. So you know, it's at the end of the day, uh, I'm not trying to humanize animals. I don't want to be accused of that. But good parenting and good stockmanship are very similar. There's a, there's a lot in common.
2: There's a lot in common. Yeah, and I and I only ask that question because I feel like there's a lot of pressure on consumers to think about, to to disassociate the humane aspects of animal, you know, look at a protein as a protein, and that leads us down this very dark and slippery slope. Well, my final question, and then I'll let you go, um, you know, the five plus, the plus in the five plus is, is that animals must be born and live their entire lives on one farm. And I'm wondering if you can just share with us why, why that's important, why we should care about that as consumers?
3: Well, um when I farmed very industrially, and I did for 20 years, you know i I would raise uh and at, and at, at that time, uh, I was a monoculture of only cattle, and that's a whole episode, the difference on a monoculture and a polyculture. And the worst thing the worst thing we did when we made factory farms is we turned them into monocultures of just one animal, in which there's no symbiosis. And I can just tell you, nature abhors a monoculture. Nature fights a monoculture. But you, we would raise. Uh, in my case, I was a monoculture of cattle. And you know, I would raise. At that time, we could put about a hundred. Had of 450-pound calves on a truck, a double-decker truck that you see running them down the highway with live cattle on it. And we would take, you know, we did a reasonably good job taking care of the cattle. We certainly did not inflict, cont- intentionally inflict pain and suffering on the animals. Instinctive behavior probably wasn't so good, but we, we, we didn't hurt them on purpose. But then, you know, I'm here in South Georgia on a maybe on a, a summer day when it was 90 or 100 degrees in September, uh, we'd load 100 animals on a double-decker truck with the ones on top urinating and defecating on the ones on the bottom. And we'd let them be driven 30 hours to some, you know, Iowa, Nebraska, or Colorado, where the, where the, the centralized feeding operations were. We talked about centralization, industrialization, and commoditization. And they'd get off that truck, and there's probably you know that there may be frost on the ground, and they'd be crowded into pens when they were fed uh, a what's called a TMR, total mixed ration of whatever some nutritionist decided would make them gain weight the most rapidly. And the step five plus, where they're raised and harvested on the farm, is an effort to get away from that system and get back to uh, a system where uh, the, the farm really is the farm that adds the value and, and has the animal there. Well. Uh, you know, our animals here believe that people are their, are their servants. Because all they see us do is feed them and water them <laughs> until until the last day of their lives when we slaughter them, and we raise them and slaughter them with all the uh, uh respect that we can muster so that you know that's that's what step 5 is about
2: well, thanks so much uh I really appreciate you taking some time out to to share your insights with us today.
3: Always a pleasure to be on. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Folks, if you happen to find yourself in Bluffton, Georgia, definitely stop by the farm for some lunch. Um, You can also learn more about them and and where to find their great products by visiting www.whiteoakpastures.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been another episode of The Farm Report. This, like all 35 of our live weekly shows, are available for free. Uh, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, or visit our website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. We are a member supported, nonprofit radio station, so if you believe in our work, please click that donate tab and become a member today. Thanks so much for listening and stay tuned in.
1: Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network.